cliffcentral.com.com Download the Cliff Central app available now on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. You've got quite a show Quite a show packed, a packed show lined up for you. We'll be going continental. So we'll be talking a bit about South Sudan, Africa's youngest country. Um, but has had a bit of, rocky, of a rocky start to independence since its separation from sort of the wider Sudan. So we'll be speaking to former Vice President Rick Machar um, and hearing just his perspective on, on the violence going on there and his role or in, in, in perpetuating it or rather his role in ending it. We just got a really, really great interview lined up. I can't wait to play you. And secondly, we'll be talking about an investigative journalist who, whose research has led him to find that the United States is, is secretly building, um, what should I call it, military bases across the continent, which is, I mean, astounding. So again, two really, really great exclusive interviews we'll be playing for you later. So please stay tuned. Remember, you can join the interview. Join the interview. You can join the conversation. Slow start, guys. I'm sorry. On Twitter, on at DM Shows Now, thankfully, I can stop talking and introduce my guest. The African Oracle, the Sub-Saharan Sage, <laughs> Simon Allison, welcome to the show, man. <laughs> Thanks, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on and it's nice to be talking about some, uh, some really important issues, actually. I mean, it's, when, you, when, you, when you contacted me and you said this were going to be the, the, the topics, I, I just couldn't believe it. It's, it's stuff that we, we, we haven't had a chance to really dig into in the past, so I'm happy to, to be able to jump in. Absolutely. Um, what are we doing first? Uh, so let's start with South Sudan. Um, a country that's not, I mean, it, it doesn't really always make headlines. I mean, it's, it's, it's generally the same kind of countries that we end up discussing on here and you find in the newspapers, you Ethiopia's, Kenya's, Nigeria and so on. So we don't talk about this too much. So I'd love to just start with some context. I mean, I just remember the fanfare in 2011 when South Sudan was sort of becoming a country and then we just didn't hear much else after that. You're, you're right. There's a sort of Sudan fatigue. I think that the world sort of thinks that the problems there are, have been, they've been going on for so long. Mm. They are so seemingly intractable that, well, we've just moved on to different, more interesting topics. But the reality is that South Sudan is in the middle of probably the deadliest civil war going on in Africa at the moment. This is the worst conflict that we are seeing on the continent. And really, it isn't getting much attention at all. There are only, I think, three or four um, foreign journalists in Juba l- looking at what's going on. So, so there's not a lot of news coming out. Um, it is a tragic, tragic story. From the, the, the absolute euphoria of the Independence Day mm. celebrations mm. in 2011, where Africa created a new country, this, 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 generations long struggle for freedom from the the really brutal rule of Khartoum in the north um you know th- this victory was realized in a new country mm. with a new flag and a new capital and a new currency and everyone was so happy i was in juba about a year after that happened mm. and the mood was incredibly optimistic um, there was this really palpable feeling that, yes, you know, we're poor and we haven't got the stuff we need, but we're building our future and we're going in the right direction. And after all this fighting, we are now ready to win the peace. And then December 2013, um, 
No one really knows what exactly happened, but some kind of firefight broke out in the presidential palace between soldiers loyal to uh, Selva Kiir, the president, and forces loyal to Rik Machar, who was the deputy president. Both of these guys are lions of the liberation struggle in their own right. They are national heroes, icons, but they've never got along. Even when they were fighting together on mm. the same side, mm. they were in different factions. They were very mistrustful of each other. They come from um, different ethnic backgrounds, and they really haven't ever seen eye to eye. So once this the, this fighting started in Juba, it really quickly escalated into something much bigger. And what happened is, is Rik Machar, the deputy president, he fled the capital and started building up a rebellion in the countryside. And that rebellion is what is still going on today. This fighting between the rebels and the government. They're fighting over cities. They're fighting over oil fields. Um, they are fighting mostly for themselves because, you know what, the truth is that, that, you know, the average citizen in South Sudan is not benefiting, benefiting from this war at all. Quite the opposite. Millions of people are displaced. Um, hundreds of thousands are at risk of like severe food insecurity. No one knows what the, de- the death toll is, but we're probably talking definitely thousands, possibly tens of thousands. And along with that, we've seen some of the worst human rights abuses that we have ever seen on the African continent, like extraordinary stories of soldiers going into villages and lining daughters up against the wall and raping them, um, of locking villages into their huts and burning the huts down. Um, really, really brutal graphic stuff um and that is what's going on in south sudan at the moment so when i got a chance to to interview rik machar he was he's he's the rebel leader he's the deputy president who really you know played a key role in causing Mm. all this i was quite nervous because i knew that there were hard questions that i wanted to ask him but i didn't know what kind of guy he was going to be um so it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a really interesting interview. Um, probably one of the most difficult I've ever done. Um, but also one of the most, uh, professionally rewarding because he did talk. Um, and even though I didn't buy mm. his line on things, he was prepared to answer the difficult questions. He was prepared to engage in a debate. Um, and, uh, I think we really came out with an insight of, of what he thinks is going on. And it's very different from what the rest of us think are go- is going on. Okay, I think I don't think there's much else to be said before jumping in. So I'm just about to play the interview that. Um, I just want to, cl- want to yeah. sort of clarify, yeah, please, set please, the please. scene a little bit before yeah, we please. start. Um, this interview was done in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and this might you know strike you as, as slightly surprising, but actually that's where Rik Machar has his residence. Um, so he pretty much lives in Addis Ababa. So this rebel commander. You think he'd be on the front lines, or at least in the in the country that he's fighting for? No, he's in another country, um, in a beautiful part of town next to you know burger joints and um, fancy hotels. Debonairs has just opened around the corner, you know. So him and his men are living a life of luxury in Addis Ababa um, while waging the war at the same time, and uh, that's where I went to see him at his three-story house, a nice luxurious villa, beautiful furniture. Um, and we met in, in the living room there. All right, here we go. This is CliffCentral.com. Dr. Machar, what I'd like to ask you first is your 
vision of the future. If you were to imagine South Sudan in five years' time, where do you see your country? It's like if, if wishes were horses, uh, like I would like South Sudan in five years a stable, outlooking, united, prosperous nation. Uh, we we are um, underdeveloped now. Uh, we have big potential. Uh, we could uh, come peace, and I, I'm I'm optimistic that peace will come. Uh, peace will prevail, actually. Want to go about doing their own business, creating life for themselves. You say you're optimistic that peace will come. Mm, peace will prevail. Many, many observers are not optimistic. Um, what is the reasons for your optimism? There's an agreement signed. We signed it. It's five months, uh, 13 days since we signed it. Uh, if this agreement could be implemented with the necessary focus from the grantors of the peace agreement, uh, peace would prevail in the country. Because there's no other choice. Only cause following peace. So the guarantors, you're saying they need to do more to yeah, guarantee they need the to do peace. More. Who specifically? They got mm -hmm. the Troikas, the Troika. They need to do more because now they have left our president, violate the agreement, and I, I don't think they have given him the necessary pressure to ensure that he implements the agreement by letter and spirit. Dr. Macha, you've been um, involved in South Sudanese politics for decades now. You are already a hero of the liberation movement. You've been working hard for many, many years. Do you feel tired? Do you feel like you'd like to retire and spend time with your family? You know, I, I've been, since the young days of the liberation, uh, fighting for the welfare of South Sudan. Now, South Sudan is independent. I'm very proud of it. I thank God for keeping me alive, see independence of South Sudan. Uh, I'm also a vehicle for change. Uh, I'm happy with the, the agreement signed because this is going to usher in reforms. It will also usher in new system of governance federalism in my country. And I'm satisfied with that. You know? When the time comes for me to retire, I will retire and say, I have done my part. I fought the battle.
And, and when, when do you think that time is? Oh, time is just coming close. It's coming close. Don't worry about that. It's coming. It's coming. It's in, in, inevitable. You know? What will you do when you retire, just out of interest? Because it's, it's hard to make a new life. I have lived full life. Uh, what, what remains for me is to ensure things are moving uh, correctly and for others to take over. You know? uh, so if, if there's anything I want to live longer for, it's to create stability in the country and I see the system moves. Even without me, you know. It's good to see a system once has created moving without that particular person. Because this is when you are sure it will go longer. Many outside observers have um, described the, the conflict in South Sudan as an ethnic conflict. Do you agree with this? If it was an ethnic conflict, I would have quit long, long time ago. It's a battle of ideas, it's a battle of uh, system of governance, political battle. It is not. Others want to make it, but that's their choice. But to me, create a system that will last in South Sudan is what I want. Um, I, the, 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 the tragedy the ethnic group I come from fell into. My first statement to them was, let's transform this tragedy into a national liberation movement that will bring about unity of the country, peace, development, prosperity, justice, democracy. So I didn't, I, I did, I didn't follow that line. But it, it's an interesting point you raise. Um, you are the leader of the opposition, yes. but the opposition is many different groups, um, different militias, different commanders. Is it possible to, to to lead all of those people to keep them on the same page? We have united them. We we in actual fact our movement is very democratic. Uh, uh, since we established ourselves uh, April 2014 into one unit, we have met uh, as in, in conferences and in leadership level more than seven times. This is not, this is not easy in liberation armed struggle. So we, we, we are a cohesive group now. When you say things on, on, you know, it's not easy to meet, um, there are no. huge logistical challenges involved in, in this operation. Um, and I know it's a sensitive topic, but I would like to, to ask you, where do the resources to fight this come from? Where does the money come from? Where did the arms come from? Because it, it's a very expensive business. From our own people. People contribute. And international solidarity is still there also. People who want justice, democracy, 
development contribute to such. And what about the weapons? The government buys them, will come and take, take them over from them. Liberate them. <laughs> yes. The United Nations, um, there was recently a report that, uh, in the last few days, that your name and, and President Silva Kiir's name are on a list of individuals um, that they would like to impose sanctions on. What is your reaction to this? I say it's unfair. They're acting uh, uh, without justice. How can you quit? a perpetrator with a victim. I am a victim. Why would sanctions be imposed on me? Why? And will the, will the sanctions, and they're also talking about an arms embargo, will that have a, a significant impact for you? Arms embargo, embargo has no impact on me because I buy no arms. It's the government that buys arms. What are your um, policies to alleviate the humanitarian crisis? Uh, there are more than two million people are, are displaced. Is there anything that you can do to, to help in, in the short term? And I know the long-term solution is, is for major political change in South Sudan, but in the short term, this, this, this crisis is affecting so many of your people. Free movement of humanitarians, give them access to reach the needy, uh, support the humanitarians in this effort without being interrupted, uh, ensure that the ceasefire that we declared on the 29th is maintained so that there is no more displacement. The sooner the, the transitional government of national unity is formed, the better, so that we can cater for our people and support the, human, the international humanitarian action that is taking place. Uh, we, we have opened South Sudan to uh, humanitarians to access any person who is in need. We'll check this is recording. Okay, that's good. Okay. Given that humanitarian suffering, it, it has been on a huge scale. There have been thousands of, of, of deaths, and I know you've, you've said in the past that it is something that weighs heavily with you. Do you think maybe South Sudan's independence was a mistake? I'm a hero of the independence. It can never be a mistake. Uh, we, we, we have found ourselves in this despicable situation, but that doesn't mean that our independence uh, is not cherished. We cherish our independence. We fought for it for many generations. 
we have achieved it uh, during our time. So the independence is, is deserved by the people of South Sudan. They deserve it. And nothing will take it away from them. To change the topic slightly, um, economically, um, the, the price of oil has fallen dramatically. Um, how is this affecting um, both sides of this conflict? Because the government can't really afford to sell its oil with the, with the royalties it must pay. Um, well, I think this, this should force the government to accept, to honor the peace deal, so that the little we can get from the oil or from any other resources that we have is used for, ser for giving services to the people rather than use those resources to fight war. So uh, when the oil was booming, the government was buying arms from all over the world. Now it's going to be constrained by the fact that this resource is uh, not anymore getting uh, revenue to it. And I think that will give it uh, a better realization than anything else. The other um, question I wanted to ask you was, the, there was the African Union report which documented um, very severe human rights violations committed by both sides in this conflict. Um, I know you can't account for the government, but you know, the troops that answer to you, they are committing very serious crimes. How do you deal with that as a commander-in-chief? You know, I said we, we formally organized April 2014. The violations that are being enumerated happened prior to this date. But however, we took responsibility that since the groups that we have brought together to form the outfit I now lead, we take responsibility. But we have, con uh, we have contained uh, these violations now. Uh, we were very open to, to investigation. Uh, we are satisfied with the investigation done by the international community, whether it is done by ICRC or by the UN. And once the situation is calm, we will take action on those individuals that uh, committed such atrocities. Some are known, some we may not know, but we will stem it out. And many African leaders recently have, have um, been very critical of the ICC um, and its role in Africa. Do you think that it, that it has a role in South Sudan, that it, it could be a force for positive change? I'm not a critic of ICC, because after all, what is ICC wanting to do? Is to ensure that impunity is stamped out, crimes against humanity, uh, war crimes 
genocide, aggression, are avoided. These are the four principles on which the ICC is established. If any country does not want the ICC to be involved in their own, then they must ensure that they avoid committing such atrocities. Uh, and they must ensure that the Rome statute is internalized in their own law. And the ICC and their courts uh, work efficiently. And the ICC will not come in. Would you, if the ICC were to issue an arrest warrant for one of your generals, would you hand that, hand that yeah, person we would. over? We would. We would. We, we were committed to combating impunity. So. And that is a recognition of the fact that our country is not in a position to try those who have committed atrocities, uh, particularly in the four areas, crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, aggression. Since we have no law against this, and there is a body that can access, uh, do this work, well, in, in the peace agreement, we, we fought hard that there would be a hybrid court uh, that will handle these issues. So this, this court will uh, definitely uh, handle these issues. And it is a continental court. Mm -hmm. There will be South Sudanese, there will be uh, others from Africa. So we can't contradict ourselves, <laughs> since we already have committed to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, Dr. Machar, much has been made of your relationship with President Kerr. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, what is your relationship with President Kerr, and, and what do you think of him as, as a person and a leader? We have worked together for eight years. At difficult times. until he removed me, until he uh, triggered the violence of uh, December 15th, 2013. If, if in government, if we had worked for eight years together, what is three years? And before that, prior in the liberation, we were working together. Do you like him? I don't have to like him. Isn't it, I mean, again, given the sort of the, the levels of humanitarian suffering, mm -hmm. do you sometimes think maybe it's best to just give up? To stop the fighting so that the suffering stops? The fighting has stopped. An agreement is on. Uh, giving up would be being irresponsible. You give up, like your first question, you, you leave when things are settled. When, when, when you see that this is the cause of things. Things will not go worse than you left them. You don't leave when there are crises. That would be irresponsibility. 
history will not forgive one for that. Um, so just to clarify, so from your perspective, the long-term damage of not fighting this is worse than, you know, you, you're prepared to take some, you know, prepared to do this fighting now because you believe there is a long-term future that yes. is better. Definitely. I spent all my life for, 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 for liberation of South Sudan. I would have done something better for my own self. But I forsake that. You know? So, resisting dictatorships is worthwhile than accepting them, thinking that things will change themselves alone. They don't. Human beings, they change course of life. Smuchai, you were, you were in Uganda earlier this week. Yes. Uganda has played a, a very significant role um, with their troops that have been in South Sudan. Um, what did you and President Museveni talk about? Well, we talked about this. They, they interfered, they fought us, they fought along uh, the current regime. Uh, they also, uh, they, they actually, they, play, they had played three roles. The role of uh, supporting a government which to us, a government that has killed its people. Uh, they also played a role of uh, trying peaceful, to get a peaceful solution in the search for a peaceful, for peace and stability. They did that. And now they are grantors of, uh, of the peace agreement. So I went to visit him on the, on the last agenda that he's a grantor of, the, uh, of this agreement. And uh, I want to turn a new page in the, in the relations so that we implement the, the peace agreement. My, my last question, Dr. Machana, thank you for taking the time to, to speak to us. Um, how would you like history to remember your role? Created the country. That, that's not a bad thing, though. That's, oh, yeah. that's pretty cool. Uh, created the country. And do you have I, any... I, I was fought by my brothers when I said self-determination is what we should fight for and by my enemies. Uh, and in the end we won. Self-determination. We are free. And do you have any regrets? If I would have... My regrets would be the, the death, the, the suffering, that my people has uh, have got, and those who got involved in uh, all these struggles, these are my regrets. But then I tell my people, there's no independence on a silver plate. We have to sacrifice for it. Thank you very much. This is CliffCentral.com. If you're just tuning in, we just aired our exclusive. <laughs> Can we say exclusive? It's already been on Twitter and on the article. We're gonna we're gonna run with Let's it anyway. Let's just say exclusive. You heard it here first. All the all the fun things to say. Interview with former vice president of South Sudan and now rebel leader, um, Dr. Rick Macha, uh, by Simon Allison, who I have in studio with me. I mean, Simon, like I said to you, you know, uh, before. When, I mean, hearing that, he sounds like a really reasonable guy. Actually, a nice guy. 
and really paints himself as as a victim and somebody just trying to do the right thing. But you know, he went to convince. He was he was lovely. I I was charmed. I had a great time. He was hospitable. He was courteous. He commands an easy sort of respect. Um, I, I felt like I was having a nice chat with my grandfather. It was that kind of um, relationship, that kind of vibe that he gives off. Uh, and a lot of the stuff he says superficially makes sense. Mm. There is a sort of internal consistency mm. in the messages that he's pushing. Mm. This idea that it's you know the government's fault that he wants peace, but mm. the other side won't move. That he's laid down his weapons, um, but the other side keeps fighting. But it's just not true. You know, um, at one point, he, when he was talking about human rights violations, yeah. he said, oh, no, we haven't committed yes, we any human rights since violations 2014. since 2014. Rubbish. I mean, absolute nonsense. Um, this idea that, um, you know, since the peace agreement was signed, mm. that his um, fighters have laid down their weapons. Also, absolute nonsense. There have been several reports of rebel forces going in and massacring villages and killing people. So you sort of wonder... There are two options. Number one, he is actually deluded. So he's sitting in Addis Ababa. His generals on the ground are feeding him information. Mm. What information are they feeding him? How accurate is that information? We don't know. Um, He's built up this picture of himself as a liberation fighter. He thinks he's waging a just war. And he's managed to convince himself that he is doing so. He's found ways to explain away all the inconsistencies. That's not... Um, out of the realms of possibility. You know, these kinds of, of leaders, they have a sort of megalomania, um, almost a, a, a disorder that allows them to, to do this. On the other hand, maybe he's also just a very experienced politician who knows how to charm people, who yeah. knows how to tell people what they want to hear, who knows how to sell his side of the story. Um, either way, he is presiding over um, extraordinary amounts of suffering. And so to hear him say at one point in that interview, I am a victim, um, even during the interview itself, it, it it made me want to sort of get up and leave the room. Because how how can a man who, you know, even if he does believe in what he's doing, he's still living in comfort in Addis Ababa, ordering people to go die, ordering people to go and kill um, he is not the victim in any way, shape, or form. It's uh, it's the South Sudanese people who are suffering through this that are the victims, and he doesn't seem to get that. You could, are you convinced that he does have the power to end this if 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 he if he made the command and he, and he perhaps not. Okay. He is uh, sort of divorced from the the fighting mm. on the ground. He's not in full control of his generals that are on his side. Um, uh, which again is, is, you know, he said he was in the interview. He said everyone's on the same page. Well, no, they're not. Um, and so, you know, if he were to say, you know what, this war's silly, let's stop fighting, would his generals listen? Perhaps not. But also, you still got to try. Um, he still is in a position to at least moderate the, the, the worst consequences of mm. this war, and he is not doing so. Okay. My final question on this. Post interview, um, how has this changed, if at all, your sort of analysis and looking at the South Sudanese situation on the conflict? Has it changed it at all? Is it looking good? Any any end in sight? 
I, I think to be honest, yep. it has made me more pessimistic okay. because getting so close to one of the key movers in the conflict and seeing just how stubborn mm. he is, just how unwilling to make real concessions, just how unwilling he is to actually live in the real world of facts and information, you know, he's, he is living for one, you know, I don't know which explanation it is, but he is living in this bubble, maybe cynically, or maybe he is deluded. We don't know, but that is, that is the war he's fighting. He's not fighting the the real war on the ground, it seems. And he's not, he's not negotiating around that. And he's also not, he he has made the strategic calculation that whatever long-term goal He has in his mind, you know, this more freedom, more independence. You know, he was very vague on what he actually wants from this war. It's all just platitudes. But that long-term goal is worth, he has decided it is worth any amount of suffering. Um, and he even said that in the interview, you know, the people have to make sacrifices. And that to me is a sign of someone who is, is very readily, he, the, the human cost of this war is not weighing as heavily on him. As it should, it's not influencing his decision making. I imagine the same is true of his counterpart on the government side, President mm. Salva Kiir, who has been, if anything, more obstinate, uh, more difficult to deal with than Machar. So I, I don't see any swift resolution in sight while these two dinosaurs are essentially slugging it out between themselves, regardless of the consequences. There you go. Not too much I can add there. We're just going to go into a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back. We have all given the special lady in our lives a gift that she might not have loved as much as we expected she would. Don't leave it to chance this Valentine's Day. Spoil her with a genuine piece of Pandora jewelry, a unique gift that she will cherish forever from only 399 Rand. Visit Pandora.net to locate your nearest store or follow them on Facebook at Pandora South Africa and take the guesswork out of gifting. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Just going into the last quarter of the show, um, and Simon will be telling us his thoughts on the new Beyonce video on the halftime show he's been analyzing that intensely <laughs> and i will save you an attempt trying to even answer that question but anyway twitter tells me it was amazing i haven't seen it i hear it's great i don't know you know whatever anyway a lot going on in the country we have a candler case hearing at the constitutional court um we've got two journalists there and jenny munasami and greg nicholson um who are tweeting live from there so please please if you're on twitter head over there and see what's going on and we'll make sure to cover that at the next show but for the last portion, we want to, you know, shift gears a bit and talk about sort of American military influence on the continent. Um, now, Simon, when you told me you were working on this, my sort of first very naive thought was, why does America have military bases on the continent at all? Before we it, get no, to this, it's not naive. It's a, it's a great question. You know, like, what on earth is the American military doing on another continent? And now to talk, I mean, one, I don't understand that, and two, now it's not that. Why do they have them? They have now secret ones on top of the not secret ones that everybody is okay with. So, I mean. So, I guess here's what we know about yep. America and Africa. This yep. is what's official on record. Okay. Is they have, um, the American military has divided the world into sort of different spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a, a special 
um, you know, a, a sort of contingent of the army which is dedicated to African issues. Mm-hmm. It's called Africa, or Africom, Africom, the Africa Command. It's based in Stuttgart in Germany because no African country is really willing to host um, such a major American military base in public at least. Um, on the continent itself, what they have is one major base in Djibouti called Camp Lemonnier. Um, the French also have a little um, a contingent there. And that base has, I mean, a, a lot of troops, like more than 10,000 troops, I think. Jeez. And uh, they have a runway. They, they, they bring transport planes in there. They do have fighter jets there. They have drones there. Um, and this is, you know, this we know about their, their footprint in Africa. Now, Nick Terse is an investigative journalist with um, a site called TomDispatch.com. It, it is a really, really fantastic site. It's it's American, but it looks very closely at America's foreign policy, and it sort of tells the stories that mainstream media miss or you know aren't that interested in. A lot of what they do is trying to um, pick holes. I think in. Mm. You know, in, in what the, the U.S. military or the State Department says it's doing versus what it's actually doing. And uh, Nick Terse made his name. Um, I mean, he's produced lots of great work, but mm. one of his, his, mm. his biggest was he looked into accounts of, of U.S. massacres um, in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War. And he uncovered a lot of those. Um, they were a lot more widespread than um, we realized. They were a lot more deliberate than we realized. I mean, it was his work that brought that to the fore. Now, while he was doing some research into the U.S. military, mm. he sort of kept coming across random documents. Um, you know, there'd be some kind of um, tender notice, and it would, you know, be tendering about this, this, yeah. this, 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 and then also there's something for something in Africa. Mm. And he kept seeing um, little clues that indicated something was going on in Africa. But when he approached AFRICOM to ask… What's going on? They said, no, there's nothing. We have one military base in Djibouti, and that is all. So he said, no, this doesn't add up. Um, and he devoted a lot of his time, took him a couple of years, to um, to investigate what's going on. And now you can't just Google this stuff. Um, this is really um, intense investigative journalism. You also can't just ask the US military cool, because they're ask. not going to answer you. So what he had to do was he had to like – you know, he had to work the system. He almost mm. had to game the system. And so what he would look at, um, you know, U.S. military departmental budgets and break those down and see mm. if there was any lines that were attached to something else. Mm. He would look at uh, requisition orders for, you know, um, th- these clamshell hangars, they, they're called, which is what they erect at these secret military bases mm. um, to put the planes in. Um, you know, if... Uh, how many hangers have been ordered and where do they go? Mm. Um, and then try and piece it together from there. He would use, and this is quite astonishing, he'd use Google Earth. I was just thinking, can you just look? You can literally look. So he'd like scour like patches of desert in uh, the Sahel. Jeez. And I think he had a few tip-offs of, of where he should be looking. Jeez. But those satellites capture stuff. Um, th- th- there's one in, in Djibouti and on the Daily Maverick article we wrote mm. about this, um, which I think we'll we'll tweet out yeah, the link. Yeah, we'll share that just now. He um oh, so we, we've got a picture of, of mm. the secret base in Djibouti where the U.S. military have been denying that they're building anything, but there quite clearly you can see the you runway. You just want to hold up the picture and you be know, like, "What's like, this? What's this?" Like, we don't you know. know you can see the runway. You can see the the sort of U.S. standard issue um, equipment that yeah. that is being used to to build. Yeah. Um, and eventually, 
over the course of his research, he uncovered something like 60 U- uh, secret bases. So we went from one to six. Um, and uh, we, in the interview, we've asked him to describe what they look like. And, and we've also asked him to explain to us why. You know, as you said at the beginning, what on earth is the U.S. military doing all over Africa? All right. That's a big question. We'll play the interview right now, also exclusive, and you heard it here first, <laughs> and all those wonderful things. I'll be back. It's just under 10 minutes. We'll play it right now. This is CliffCentral.com. So, Nick, the U.S. officially has one base in Africa. Your research suggests something a little bit different, doesn't it? That's right. Um, you know, when I I studied this, uh, you know, uh, late in 2015, you know, the count that I came up with was uh, 60 different uh, outposts, compounds, uh, facilities, austere locations located all over the continent, north to south, east to west. Um, U.S. military is loath to call these bases, but it's uh, it's difficult to see them as as anything but. Uh, many of them are. Um, uh, aircraft capable C-130s, which are uh, major transport aircraft, can can land at them. Uh, many of these are also drone bases. Can you describe, you know, what might one of these bases look like? Generally, uh, one of these bases is uh, an airstrip with uh, a number of uh, what they call clamshell enclosures, which are uh, these uh, sort of beige, sand-colored. Uh, uh, they, they look like tents from the air, but they're, they have a hard frame. Uh, these are used to store aircraft. They're used for aircraft maintenance. Then there are, uh, some, uh, will generally have, uh, hard structure tents that are put up. You'll often find satellite equipment at these bases as well. Um, and, um, you know, this is, this is how they start. And then some like, uh, Camp Lomignet in Djibouti, which is, uh, the, uh, the major U.S. military base on the continent. Then they'll have uh, more permanent structures that uh, you know, that are designed for the long term. This suggests that the U.S. military is um, planning on expanding its its operations in Africa quite dramatically. Um, what is the U.S. military's interest in Africa? Well, I think that uh, you know, since especially since uh, since nine eleven, since two thousand one. Uh, the U.S. military has uh, has looked at Africa as a source of, of instability, a place that's um, either likely to produce terror groups or, uh, or be the location that uh, that terrorist groups would uh, relocate to. So, as a result, uh, you know, the U.S. is uh, you know really uh, sorry. The, the U.S. has uh, you know increased. Uh, its its footprint every way possible. Uh, you know what it's what it's tried to do in in, in many ways is work with uh, with local militaries, uh, African forces across the continent to uh, to build up these forces to act as proxy forces in the fight against uh, various terror outfits. Uh, when the when the uh, U.S. Africa Command, the umbrella uh, organization for for all U.S. military activity on the continent, was uh, created in 2008. Uh, it was running about 172 of these uh, military-to-military missions each year. Uh, in 2014, that had jumped to 674 per year, so a 300% increase over that time. Um, and you know, this is this has been. Um, you can see this with the the missions bases. 
all of this, and it's all been geared towards uh, you know anti-terrorism activities, uh, often with uh, you know, the exact opposite results of, of what the, uh, the U.S. has pursued. How, uh, how forthcoming has AFRICOM been with you about its intentions and, and about the scale of, of the operations in Africa? Not very. Uh, it's very difficult to get any kind of information out of AFRICOM. Uh, you know, very tight-lipped. They often won't even give me, uh, you know, basic information about what they're doing. So, you know, as a result, uh, I've had to get creative in my methods, piece together uh, information from a variety of sources, open source material, internal Pentagon documents, uh, documents that I, I obtained through uh, what we call Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, which is classified material. Sometimes you can get your hands on it. Um, and... Uh, and try and put all this together with, uh, you know, hopefully you can find you know, some uh, former AFRICOM personnel who will talk, and together, you know, with, with enough time and, and work, uh, you can start to get an idea of what they're doing. This must be costing an extraordinary amount of money. Where is it all coming from? Africom's the expansion of, of oh. bases in, in Africa. Um, who's financing it? I mean, this is uh, you know U.S. taxpayer dollars uh, at work. You know, these bases are um, a lot of times they're hidden in the budget, but uh, you know this is a it's, it's a sizable outlay of money. Uh, just to give you an example, you know the U.S. is putting in a, a, a base right now in uh, Agadiz in. Uh, in Niger, and uh, you know this base is a is a fifty million dollar investment. So this is uh, courtesy of the American people. They're putting in uh, uh, airstrip. It's uh, it's it's certainly going to be a drone base, and uh, probably you know looking towards a, the, the fight with Boko Haram. Uh, so this is uh, this is a, a serious outlay of, uh, of of America's money. You know what what could you know possibly be used for uh, you know humanitarian. Uh, aims or development in Africa is instead going towards this military infrastructure. And then um, my last question, Nick: um, How does um, the U.S. military's footprint in, in Africa, which you have very helpfully shown, is much larger than than we thought it was? How does this compare with its footprint in other regions of the world? Well, I, I think uh, you know what's going on in Africa is. Uh, it's very different than what you see in other other areas of the world. You know, a few years ago, the U.S. Uh, government was talking about a pivot to Asia uh, to counterbalance China. They would uh, increase their their footprint uh, all over that region. Uh, that really never uh, uh, seemed to amount to anything. A few Marines sent to, to Darwin, Australia, uh, maybe building up some more bilateral ties in the region. But, uh, but what I've seen and, and documented is a, is a true you know, pivot to Africa, where there's uh, tangible base building all over the continent. Uh, you know, it's, it's akin to what we saw uh, in some ways uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Not at that level, but, uh, but a lot of building going on almost all the time now. Uh, very different than what you see in, in Asia. Um, certainly different than, than what's going on in uh, you know, other theaters where the, where the U.S. has a presence, such as uh, Europe or even uh, South America and the Caribbean. Perfect. Nick, thank you very much for talking to The Daily Maverick. Thanks so much for having me. This is CliffCentral.com.
That was our interview uh, by Simon Allison with Nick Tess, investigative journalist who's uncovered a, not a bunch, more than a bunch, 60 secret U.S. military bases across the continent. We've just got probably a minute or two to go. I just want to jump into the AU um, sitting that happened last week, two weeks ago. And Simon Allison is with me in studio, was there. And Simon, the big question leading into that was about Burundi. We've had a lot of instability over there. Mm. And we're waiting for the AU, the leaders, our leaders to sit down and tell us what they're going to do about it. What happened? Not a lot. Oh, well, n- not things we wanted to see happen. So, so the big thing coming into the summit was that the, the African Union's Peace and Security Council had approved a peacekeeping force and said, you know, we want to send a peacekeeping force to Burundi um, to stabilize the situation, stop the violence. Burundi said it doesn't want the force, um, which complicates things. But the idea was that at this summit, they'd uh, take that Peace and Security Council decision and they'd get the General Assembly to rubber stamp it. And what that would do, even if Burundi doesn't accept mm. the, the mm. peacekeeping force, is it puts the pressure on Nkurunziza. It acts as further leverage to get him to the negotiating table. You know, it, it, it just means, you know, it keeps the heat on the situation. Get to Addis, um, have another meeting of the Peace and Security Council, this time with heads of state, although not Pierre Nkurunziza because, uh, he's too scared to leave Bujumbura after the last coup attempt. But what the leaders, you know, what they came out with after that was that they basically scrapped the idea of the peacekeeping force. Um, it is still provisionally on the table, like in theory, but in reality, the African Union is not pursuing this anymore. That's what the ambassadors said to us in the corridors afterwards. Um, some of the, the ambassadors who were in the meeting mm. came out and said stuff like, you know what, the situation in Burundi is not so bad, really. It's been exaggerated. You know, the human rights organizations are, you know, they're, they're seeing things that aren't there. And this to me was the most damaging bit of all because they essentially just swallowed the Burundian government's propaganda. And that's what they were making their decision on. Even though the AU's own internal reports, um, this was the info they'd based the, the December decision on. They say, yes, things are as bad as it seems. The UN's reports say, yes, things are as bad as it looks. Um, but, uh, the AU in this meeting backtracked, took all the pressure off Burundi. And um, Pierre Nkurunziza's uh, foreign minister um, was sort of jumping around the room, beaming um, and saying that this was a vindication for Pierre Nkurunziza and a victory for Burundi. So I think all in all, it was a, a pretty big fail as far as the African Union is concerned. There you hear it. Pretty much no action from the AU on the Burundi crisis, I think we could definitely call it. It's exact, just about 2 p.m., the longest show we've ever had. I'm in a lot of trouble, so I'll just say goodbye now. Please download the podcast, share it far and wide. Tweet us. We love you all, good people of our listeners. We'll see you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.